0: Father, as we come to your word today, we come once again and ask for our daily bread. We ask that you would feed us from your word today, Lord, that you would nourish us, nourish the depths of our souls, that we would find complete and total satisfaction in Christ. Strengthen us, convict us, teach us and feed us today for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter six. And if you don't have a Bible with you, if you need a Bible, we do have some out in the foyer. Um, John chapter six is where we find ourselves today as we continue our study of John. How many of you guys, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but have you ever had a spiritual discussion with somebody only for the conversation to end up kind of fizzling or just kind of going nowhere? Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone only to be met with hard-hearted unbelief? Have you ever longed for the conversion of a friend or a family member, or a coworker, only to be left wondering, what would it take for this person to actually believe? I mean, these are common frustrations that Christians face in the world as we do share the gospel, which we, we should be doing. And when you do, these are common frustrations that you'll be met with as you strive to be faithful to the Lord's command to preach, to proclaim, to declare the gospel message in a dark world, and yet it is probably good for us to remember that out of all the things that a person might marvel at, there was only one thing uh, that Jesus is said to have marveled at during his time on earth, and that is man's perpetual unbelief. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, we find that amazement, that marvel, uh, was his response to the unbelief with which he was met in his own hometown. And I suppose that if Jesus was totally mind-blown, if he was amazed by man's stubborn, rebellious unbelief, we might be as well when we see it in those who have every reason in the world to believe, and yet persist in their unbelief. In the words of A.W. Pink, quote, how difficult it is, yea, impossible for the natural man of himself to accept Christ and his finished work by simple faith. Truly nothing but the Spirit of God can enable a man to do it, end quote. And of course, this is the truth that the Bible presents about man in his natural unconverted state, so deep is his rebellion. To turn from that rebellion would actually defy his very nature. And there's perhaps no chapter in all of Scripture that helps us to understand the, the depths, the enormous depths of man's rebellion and the, the breadth of his helpless inability. There's no chapter better than that, uh, better, better than, uh, to, to show us that than John chapter 6. But let's back up for just a moment. In fact, let's go way back. Let's go back to the beginning. When God created the first human being, the first man, Adam, he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he gave him a covenant, a covenant of works in which he was assigned to do something, to, to work, right? He was, his, his assignment was to keep and to work the garden, but God also issued a single command, and that was to refrain from eating of the tree of good and evil knowledge. Of course, you remember what the penalty would be if he were to violate that one rule that he was given. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That's the consequence of sin that we find in Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17. Now in the following chapter back in in Genesis, in in chapter 3, we learn that, that Adam and Eve ate of the tree, the fruit of the tree, having been tempted by the serpent. And yet, God graciously seeks them out, which is the way it's always been ever since then, by the way. God graciously seeks them out, and while uh, he does invoke the curse of sin upon them and upon their offspring, God also makes the gracious promise of a Redeemer to come through the woman's seed. The question that you might walk away from that passage asking is, wait a minute, God said that the consequence for eating from the tree would be death. And yet, they're living. Didn't, didn't he say in, in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die? And of course the answer is yes, God, God did say that. God did make that, that promise that death would be the consequence. So how is it then that Adam continued to live? The answer to this, when we take all of the scriptures into account, The answer is that death did strike Adam on that day. Physically, he began to die. His future death became a certain reality on that day. But God said that he would die on the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit, the forbidden tree, which forces us to see that Adam didn't only start to die physically on that day, but he did entirely die spiritually on that day. He was separated from the tree of life that was in the garden. But not only did Adam die spiritually, but so did all of his offspring. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 makes this clear. Paul writes, So then, as through one transgression, speaking of Adam's transgression in violating what God had ordered him not to do, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Now of course, what's, what's Paul doing here? He's, he's making a contrast between Adam and Christ, Uh, the first Adam who failed, with the second, the true and better Adam who succeeded, and of course that is Jesus Christ. And he adds one more contrast in verse 21, writing that as sin reigned in death, speaking of the consequences of Adam's rebellion, death, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what we gather from these verses is that everyone died in Adam. All Adam and his offspring died because of his one act of rebellion. And we also find in, the, in this passage that life is only found in Christ. See, man's problem, friends, is not that we are born spiritually crippled, uh, spiritually wounded, spiritually ill. No, we are born spiritually dead. God was true to the promise that he made about the consequence of sin. We are born spiritually dead. And the Bible's very careful when it uses metaphors. Whenever the Bible uses uh, metaphors to to explain something, there's a very specific reason that that metaphor is chosen. Uh, We're dead, unable to Respond to anything, respond to God, respond to truth. We're blind, we're unable to see what is true. We're deaf, we're unable to hear or understand what is true. And the passage that we'll be looking at today underscores this condition of natural man, giving us the doctrine of man in what you might call story form. Now, as we've been studying chapter six, we've seen that Jesus fed the 5,000, which was really 5,000 families. So we're looking at uh, 20,000 plus people and that their response upon seeing this miracle of, of feeding them uh, was not to submit to him in faith, rather it was to desire that he would submit to them. So their hearts were, were filled with a desire not to submit to Jesus, but to use him, to take him by force. And thus, his response to that was, if you remember, to withdraw from them. When he saw them the following day... They expected to be fed once again, and Jesus, knowing that they were desiring wrongly, following him for all the wrong reasons, admonished them not to labor for food that perishes, like the food that he had just fed them the day before, but to labor for food that endures and unto eternal life. Understanding that Jesus was speaking spiritually, their minds immediately turned to a covenant of works what they must do to receive what Jesus is talking about, what they must work for, what their work must be in order to receive this eternal life that Christ had just told them he will give. Do, do, do. Work, work, work. That is how natural man thinks when it comes to eternal life. And as we saw uh, the last time we talked about this, you can see that in every single world religion outside of Christianity. That's, all how, that's how all the other religions in the world work. That's not how Christianity works. Man's inclination is perpetually only toward a covenant of works, a means of receiving salvation by God by doing something, by by one's own faithfulness, by one's own merit, by one's own works. And yet, think back to Genesis one more time with me, and remember how God not only drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he made sure that they would not return. The garden was where the covenant of works was given to Adam, and he failed. And God prevented, he blocked the path back to the covenant of works in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 we see that at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life the only way to receive life therefore is by God's covenant of grace not by a covenant of works and this is why Jesus answers these people, you know, after he's, he's admonished them, uh, and, and they say, what do we have to do uh, to, to get this? Jesus' answer, that's why he answers, this is the work of God that you believe him whom he has sent. So the people understood what Jesus was instructing them to do. They understood that he was saying, you must believe in me. And despite the fact that Jesus has given them every reason in the world, unbelievable proof to to follow his instructions, every reason in the world to, to be obedient to him, they respond in a way that can only be explained by understanding man's total, utter depravity, the depths of mankind's rebellion and our inability to do what God has required. So we pick it up in verse 30. John chapter 6, verse 30. Jesus has told them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We read in verse 30, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's kind of astonishing if you really think about it. We're talking about 20,000 plus people here who saw this miracle the day before. And here they are asking for a sign. I mean, there are a million things that they could have said at this point that would have been more appropriate than this right? I mean, there are countless questions that they could have asked, and if you were to write, uh, you know, every single question that they possibly could have asked out and rank them in, in order of, you know, best questions at the top, uh, this question would be right at the bottom. It, it's, it's the worst question they could have asked. Their question, in essence, is this, Jesus, what, what are you going to do to prove that you're worth believing in? What are you going to do to show us that we, sh- that we should do what you say. It's a demand for proof. It's, a, it's insisting that he give them evidence to support his claim. They want a reason. Or do they? Or do they? That's an interesting question. Remember, these are the same exact people who saw Jesus turn five barley loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 20,000 plus people. And they have the audacity to say that that miracle wasn't enough, that it was indeed insufficient to warrant their unquestioning belief. I've always been a pretty firm believer in the, you know, the colloquialism that says there's no such thing as a stupid question. And while on the surface, this might appear to be an exception to that rule, we should understand that this question is not rooted in their stupidity. It's not rooted in their stupidity, it's rooted in their rebellion. It's rooted in their dead, fallen nature. See, this isn't an issue of the mind. This isn't an issue of the intellect. It's purely, entirely an issue of the heart. These are people who are more than intellectually capable. They're they're spiritually incapable, however, of understanding why they should believe in Jesus. Remember, Paul says to the church in Corinth, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So there are two actions in, in this one verse in 1 Corinthians 2 two actions attributed to natural man in that verse, in verse 14. First of all, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Secondly, he cannot understand them. Paul doesn't say that this is true of some people by nature. He doesn't say that this is true of only a certain demographic of society by nature. He doesn't even say it's true of most people by nature. No, this verse describes all of humanity by nature. Humanity always gets it backwards when it comes to spiritual issues and salvation. Humanity thinks that seeing is believing. We've all heard that colloquialism, right? Seeing is believing. That's how humanity thinks. That's, that's the mentality of these people who are asking Jesus for a reason to believe in him, evidence to substantiate his claim to be God and to be the one who can provide for the deepest needs of their souls. They're thinking, seeing is believing. If I see, I'll believe. They're operating on that premise, but that is not how it works with God, friends. We've covered this in, in previous passages of, of John's Gospel, but the principle with God is that believing is seeing. It's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. That is when, it's when we believe that we start to see and understand the things of God. That's what faith does. It trusts in what God has said. It trusts in what God has promised. It trusts in what God has revealed in His Word rather than in what the eye can see or what the ear can hear or what the mind can fathom now one of the things that you will run into if you uh, if you're sharing the gospel regularly if you evangelize on a regular basis one of the things you'll run into is people who will claim that there are contradictions in the bible for example uh, have you ever talked to somebody who brings up this objection? Well, I'm not, sure I can, I, I'm not sure I can believe the Bible because this passage and this passage seem to contradict. You know, this verse says this, and that verse says that, and those two things contradict each other. So how can I believe that anything that the Bible says is true? You guys ever run into that objection, that kind of objection? It's a very common one. When I've been confronted with this objection, I, I've kind of got a strategy, a game plan that I, uh, that I use. The first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll ask them, can you give me a specific example of a contradiction in the Bible? And that right there will stop 90% of those conversations because they can't, because they, they aren't sure. They've, they've read somewhere else that there were some contradictions in the Bible, but they haven't read it themselves. They, they usually don't know for themselves uh, what a specific example of a contradiction in Scripture uh, is. So the second thing I'll ask is if they've done any research uh, to inquire as to what Christians have done with this apparent or alleged contradiction throughout history. I mean, you don't actually think you're the first one to see this, do you? I mean, surely somebody else has seen this. How have Christians responded to this in, uh, in the past? And usually they have not done any research but then I'll also ask them that they've heard of what you would call confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency to see what you are looking for. It, it's the, the tendency to search for and to find confirmation of beliefs that you already have. Because that's the thing, if you wanna find contradictions in scripture, uh, you'll find what appear to be contradictions uh, even though they're not really contradictions. Um, they're usually very easily resolvable. For example, one, one gospel narrative will say that there are two angels, uh, and the other, another gospel narrative will say there was only one angel. Um, don't become a detective, by the way, if you think that that's a contradiction. That's not a contradiction. Uh, that's very easily resolvable. Uh, you know, I, I, I could say that my wife is sitting in the front row, uh, and, and somebody else might say uh, his wife and his son were sitting in the front row. Is there a contradiction? Of course not. Of course not. But see, the point is that this is how humanity operates when it comes to God. Why are these people asking for a sign? Wasn't the feeding of the 20,000 plus a good enough reason for them to believe? The answer is yes, but they don't believe. So now the question becomes why don't they believe? Why wasn't the feeding of the 20,000 plus enough? And the answer is very simple it's because they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe humanity's dilemma when it comes to believing in Christ is not that there isn't enough evidence there is no humanity's dilemma when it comes to believing in Christ is that nobody by nature is willing to believe what does humanity do with what they know about God by nature what does God's word tell us fallen man does with what he knows about God It tells us that mankind suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. So the problem is not a lack of evidence. Whether we're talking about the first century or our time today, whether you're talking about the culture of first century Israel, or the culture of America, or the culture of 16th century Europe, the fact is that there is evidence everywhere you look. It's all over the place. All of it testifying to the greatness, the glory, and the worthiness of God. The problem is not, it never has been, and it never will be, a lack of reasons to believe. It's never been a lack of evidence. The fact that these people ask for evidence is proof that no evidence would ever convince anybody to believe and there's no sense in pretending otherwise. Think about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And you'll remember that the rich man ends up in hell, and he's having this conversation with Abraham, and he asks Abraham to send somebody to warn his five brothers, who are still living, of the fact that hell awaits them if they do not turn away from their rebellion. And Abraham assures him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man in hell responds, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Time out for a second. What is the rich man in hell's assumption there? His assumption is that the greatest of miracles will be enough to convince his brothers to turn from their rebellion, to repent and believe. But is it? Is that really enough? Would that really do what he thinks it would do? No. The greatest miracle will not convince someone to repent and believe. Abraham concludes the parable by telling the man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. And so it is with these people here in John chapter 6, who are a picture of humanity as a whole, by nature. Apart from God's grace, they're a picture of you and me, and every other son of Adam. Because when Adam sinned, he died spiritually, and we died with him. So we can't boast of being any better, or any smarter, or any more insightful, or any more practical, or any more submissive by nature than these people are, because we are just as worthy of condemnation as these people who refuse to believe, even though they've just seen this miracle. We have to understand why the people ask this question. It's because, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. When the people ask for a sign, when they ask for evidence, for a reason to believe in Jesus, it's not because they don't understand what he was saying. It's not because something else could actually convince them to believe. It's just their way of justifying their steadfast rebellion, their unbelief, and at the same time, putting Jesus off. But the people aren't done. They continue in verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. They say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, as I read this, I'm reminded of the fact that religion without the true biblical Jesus is the deadliest thing in the world. These are religious people. And on one level, we might say that they they know the scriptures pretty well. Whether they correctly understand the scriptures is a completely different question. But they know the story of their forefathers being led through the wilderness by Moses. Remember, as he fed them, as Jesus fed these people the day before, they had recognized Jesus as the prophet of whom Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18. The only way that they would make that connection is if they actually knew what the scriptures said, roughly. They knew that their forefathers had survived for 40 years in the wilderness on manna. And their thinking is that if Jesus is going to claim to be this prophet that Moses talked about, he should at least be able to do what Moses was able to do. He should at least be able to feed them for 40 years. For 40 years. I mean, talk about putting Jesus off. 40 years. The problem was the same problem that many religious people have today. They knew the stories from the scriptures, roughly, but they didn't understand. See, they thought it was Moses who fed them manna in the wilderness. Look at verse 31. When they say, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat, the he there in their minds is Moses. It's Moses. They thought it was Moses who fed the people in the wilderness, and they're wanting Jesus to prove that he's at least as good and at least as worthy of following as Moses was. Their statement here is basically to say, that miracle that you did yesterday, Jesus, that was a great start, but you're going to need to do better, much better than that. And at this point, what do you expect Jesus to do? I mean, if you don't know what happens from here, and, and you're reading this for the first time, what might you expect Jesus to do? I kind of expect him to, uh, to say something like, what's the matter with you people? What's wrong with you people? You know? But that's not what he does. You might expect him to just throw his hands up and say, I, I give up, I mean, isn't that what you and I are tempted to do when we're talking to people who don't believe, and even though they have every reason in the world to believe, they just don't and won't? Isn't that what we're tempted to do, too? Just throw our hands up and say, okay, forget it. I mean, we recognize that there is a time when we have to shake the dust off our sandals, so to speak, and, and move on, a time when we leave a person alone to trust, uh, and, and we just trust that if God wants to do something with the seeds we've planted, He will. But there does come a point where we can say, you know, I've done all I can and it's just time for me to move on. My, my energy and my time is better spent somewhere else. But I would encourage you, friends, not to hurry to that point. Not to hurry up and say, after maybe one or two attempts, okay, I'm just going to shake the dust off my sandals and move on. See, the decision to shake the dust from our sandals shouldn't be our response to feeling frustration at someone's unbelief. How did Jesus respond to such blatant and intentional unbelief? The same way we should. Not that we always do, but the way that we should aim for. And that is with compassion and patience. After all, do you not remember, do you not realize how gracious How patient, how compassionate God has been with you. I think I kind of have a sliver of an idea, uh, but probably nowhere near a full realization of how much patience uh, dealing with me has required of God. What about you? So Jesus doesn't throw his hands up and walk away. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get frustrated. He responds to them by showing them where they completely missed the point of the story of the manna in the wilderness. Verses 32 and 33. Verses 32 and 33 say, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The point is, Moses isn't the he there in verse 31. Moses wasn't the one who fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna. That was God. Moses was just God's messenger. He was his mouthpiece, his prophet. God was the one who provided manna to the forefathers of the people. We read this in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. We read this, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. You'll want to hold on to that, by the way, eating bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, notice who they're grumbling against. They're not grumbling against God, but against Moses and Aaron. They're hungry. You might even say they're hangry, And so they tell Moses and Aaron that they feel like, hey, you know, you you let us out of there only so that we can die someplace else in a much more painful way, uh, so that we can starve to death in the wilderness. But then we get to verse 4, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, and we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Now, who's the I there? (laughs) It's God, right? That's not Moses saying, I will do this. This is God saying that he will be the one to do this, one of the many lessons from this passage here in, in, in uh, Exodus uh, and in John 6, is seen in the way that people uh, turn to human leaders and expect something more than that human leader can actually give. Uh, they, they come to them with their concerns and fears rather than going to God in prayer first. Uh, Moses and, and Aaron were only human instruments used by God for the good of his people. And it's, it's the same way today. You know, a pastor who is a blessing to his congregation is not himself the one who blesses. No, he, he's only a human instrument. God is the one who providentially and graciously blesses. God alone is the one who blesses. Now, given that it's very clear that it was God who blessed and provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, and not Moses. Let's get back to John chapter 6. Now if it was, if the people had realized that it was not Moses that did this, but that it was God who had provided the manna, they would have seen that Jesus has already proven himself to be far greater, far more worthy of honor and worship and glory than Moses, because Jesus had provided for them with his own hands. Moses had just passed along a message from God that God was going to provide for them, but Moses himself had not provided the manna for them. But having corrected their understanding of this passage in Exodus, Jesus follows that up by making a very bold declaration of who he is. He says to them, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Of course, he's referring to himself there, the bread of of God. He's referring to himself. He's already said that he's able to give life, back in verse 27, when he said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So what he's saying is that just as manna, was God's providence for the Israelites in the wilderness, so too Jesus Christ is God's provision for giving life to the world. Let me say that again. Just as manna was God's provision to the Israelites in the wilderness, so too Jesus Christ is God's provision for giving life to the world. This is truly the the central thesis of this entire passage, and, and this is the gospel So what Jesus is saying is that the manna wasn't just a a means or an end in and of itself. Rather, what it was, was a typology. It was something that foreshadowed something greater to come. It, It was something that pointed to something else. It was something that pointed to a greater fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the true bread of God, the provision of God for life in this world. And the people remain blinded, dead in their unbelief. What would be the point of giving life, by the way, if they were not dead? I understand some people have a, a, have a difficult time understanding what it means when we say that humanity is dead by nature, spiritually dead by nature. But why would we refer to this as life? if man wasn't already dead. The people don't see their need at all. They don't realize that they're dead. They are blinded by their unbelief. We continue, verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. It sounds so good on the surface, doesn't it? It sounds so genuine. The people want this bread bread from heaven. But at the same time, they don't want Jesus. They don't believe Jesus. Once again, what we're seeing is that they want the gifts, but they don't want the giver of every good gift. They want the blessings of God, but they don't want God himself. And yet there is no other way to receive the blessings from heaven. There is no other Provision from heaven. The Father's provision for those who would live is Jesus, Christ alone. Notice that it's the bread of heaven which gives life. It gives life. That's yet another reminder that apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead. We're not spiritually wounded. We're not spiritually ill. Man is by nature spiritually dead, and thus the bread can't just be offered to man. Because being dead, man cannot respond to that offer in order to impart life to himself. No, Jesus doesn't say he offers life. He says he gives life. He gives it to the world. Of course, the word world here doesn't mean everyone. The word world in this context can only refer to those who would be given God's provision. And the response of the people is to want the gift, but not the gift giver to want the blessings but to reject the blesser give us this bread always it should remind us of the words of the Samaritan woman by the way at the at the well when before her heart was filled with faith she said to Jesus sir give me this water so that i will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw In chapter 4 verse 15 See, the problem there, the misunderstanding there, was actually the same problem that we're seeing here. Jesus wasn't speaking of of literal, physical water that that would cause her to never thirst again. He was speaking metaphorically. He was speaking symbolically. She was thinking, literally and physically, not understanding that the water that Jesus had told her about was actually himself. So it's clear that these people don't understand What Jesus is saying about the bread from heaven that God has graciously provided. And so Jesus responds to them once again, verses 35 and 36. We read, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. He doesn't say that a few of you don't believe. He doesn't say most of you don't believe. He's speaking to all of them. To all of them. Which, which reminds us once again that between chapter 5 and chapter 6, chapter 5 where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 6 where he does this miracle of feeding 20,000 plus people, out of all these people, who's saved? One the one whom Jesus sought, the man at the pool of Bethesda. But here we're confronted, in in, in uh, in verses 35 and 36, we're confronted with the first of Jesus' I am sayings. He uses it in verse 35 as he says, I am the bread of life. Remember the words I am. The words I am are a direct claim to be Jehovah. And, And they knew it, the people knew it. Remember back in, in chapter 5, they knew it when he used those words. He, when, when he made references to I am, they understood what he was claiming to be. In the same way that God provided manna to fulfill the physical needs of the Israelites, God has provided Jesus to fulfill the spiritual needs of lost, spiritually dead sinners. That's why he says, I am the bread of life. See, bread for these people, we have to understand what... what Bread was in their mind, in in their mindset, in their culture. What did bread represent? It was actually an essential food for survival. It it represented life. It represented sustenance. Uh, it, It represented life in a very, very real way to them. That's why the Lord's Prayer includes the petition, give us this day our daily bread. Aren't you glad it doesn't say give us this day our daily veggies? See, in the ancient world, which, which of course includes Jesus' time, people died if they didn't have bread. And if you can understand that much, if you can understand how necessary for survival bread was, you can see that Jesus was claiming to be the one without whom these people could not live. He is to be our daily bread, our daily portion, a provision that we feed on every day. Every day, not just Sundays, not just one day a week, not just one day a month. Every day, every day, in every season. Just as the physical human body depends on bread to live, the human soul needs Jesus in order to live. And yet, people try to depend on all kinds of other things, money or pleasure or reputation, or respect, or, or even family, anything, to feel satisfied, to to feel alive, to satisfy the ego. Friends, if you're looking for satisfaction for your soul in anything other than Jesus, you might get a temporary sense of satisfaction, but it's an illusion. It, it, it's like a mist that's here one second and is just gone the next. You will hunger for satisfaction again soon and again and again and again. Just as bread is suitable for everyone, so too Jesus is suitable. He's the one solution for everyone's deepest needs. See, there are some foods that certain people can easily go without, or maybe foods that, uh, that people have allergic reactions to. Some people can't eat nuts, for example. Some people can't eat uh, dairy. You know, there, there are allergies, we get that. But everyone can eat bread, even if, by the way, it's gluten-free bread, uh, Everyone can eat bread. Why why do you think it's offered at almost every restaurant that you go to? Uh, It's because it's uh, it's plentiful and it is suitable for all, so that customers will walk away feeling satisfied. Just as bread is suitable for all, Jesus is suitable for all. And because Jesus is suitable for all, friends, he's suitable for you. And he's not just suitable. He doesn't just suit your needs today. He always will. Whatever season of life you might be in, he is for you, he is what you need. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, Jesus alone is capable of nourishing you spiritually and giving you life. It doesn't matter if you are male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, short or tall, red or yellow, black or white, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. Jesus is for everyone. He is sufficient for satisfying for nourishing your deepest and your greatest needs, not only in this life, but eternally. Throughout all of eternity, there is no end to his greatness, no end to his glory, no end to his provision. It is unfathomable and inexhaustible. He has what you need. He is what you need. And he will not turn away anyone who comes to him in faith. The manna that God had provided for the Israelites was only good for a day. The, the manna that God provided for the Israelites could only feed and satisfy the body. It was so temporary. But the provision that God has given in Christ will feed and satisfy the soul. These people here in John chapter 6, they loved their religion. They felt very satisfied by their religion, by, by their heritage. They loved the things of this world, and they only wanted more, but all at the neglect of their souls. They wanted everything that this world had to offer except the one thing that would impart life, to their souls dear friends let that not be said of you let that not be said of you what good will it do to gain wealth to gain power to gain reputation and respect and and everything that this world has to offer and yet lose your soul do not look to the things of this world for your sense of purpose and ultimate satisfaction. In the end, whatever you gain in this world will be lost. But that is not the case with Jesus. That is not the case with Jesus. Note, note his promise here. He says, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Never. He'll Never thirst. If you have become aware of your condition, that you are hungry for more than this world has to offer, and that you must have this bread from heaven which God has provided in Christ Jesus, then you can be sure that God has imparted life to you because dead people aren't aware of their condition. Only living people are. And thus, what shall you do? You must do as Christ says. Notice how he puts two statements together right side by side in verse 35. Come to him and believe in him. You see, friends, the way you come to Jesus is to believe in him, to have faith in him. Confidence that he lived the perfect life in your place that you didn't live. Confidence that he died the death that you deserve for your sin. And that he was resurrected from the grave for you. That He lived for you. That He died for you. That He was raised from the grave with victory over death for you. Come to Him and the deepest needs and longings of your soul will be not only met, but will be satisfied. And not only temporarily satisfied, but for eternity. Come to Him and you will be granted the full provision of God. When Jesus, when Jesus promises that those who come to him will never thirst, he means that he will continue to sustain us through every situation and every circumstance in life and beyond. If you come to him weak, he will give you strength. If you come to him grieving, he will comfort and give peace to your soul. If you come to him in despair, he will give you assurance. If you come to him in confusion, he will open your eyes to see the truth. Jesus alone is God's providential blessing from heaven, sent to provide for all of our spiritual needs, today, tomorrow, and always. So friends, what are you counting on? What are you depending on? What are you striving for, for ultimate sense of satisfaction. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the deepest needs of the soul. To come to Jesus means that you are ready to stop looking to yourself for salvation. You're ready to stop working to try to reconcile yourself to God. It means to stop looking to other people and other things to satisfy the needs of your soul. And that means not looking to or trusting in yourself as well. He who comes and he who believes, that's an invitation to everyone. It's an invitation to you. So I urge you today to see the emptiness and the worthlessness of everything that this world has to offer and the glory and the worthiness of Christ and to be willing to trade everything that you have in this world if necessary, if you must, To have Him, to have Christ. Come to Him, believe in Him, and you will find all, all of heaven's blessings, all of God's providence in Him and in Him alone. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your full provision offered freely in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we consider the people in this passage, we must confess that we are no better by nature, that we were once just as helpless as they, just as unable as they were. But we thank you that you sent Jesus to be our full provision, and that you imparted life to us that we may receive him in faith. Thank you, even for that, even for the gift of faith, that we could receive what you offer in Christ. Lord, give us courage and confidence as we go out and share the gospel message and are met often with hard-hearted unbelief, may our hearts and our attitudes mirror the heart and the attitude of Christ, who was so patient, so gracious with these people, so patient and so gracious with us. We pray, Lord, for much fruit as we do spread the gospel. Lord, give us the confidence to do it, trusting in your work trusting in your sovereignty. We pray for situations, Lord, where we can share your gospel, your good news of Christ, the full provision that you have provided, the bread of heaven, the bread of life. Lord, let us humbly have the courage to represent you with that kind of grace. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be more conformed to the image of Christ as we do so, as we submit ourselves to your will and not our own. All for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.